My name is Emily Reed, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning from John chapter 11, verses 32 through 44. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave cloths and let him go. Awesome, thanks Emily. So in John chapter 10, Jesus is in Jerusalem and there's a crowd gathered there. And the crowd's not there to celebrate him. The crowd's not excited about his presence. The crowd's not experiencing joy because Jesus is in the midst. There's a crowd there who wants to kill him. There's a crowd there who's dead set on stoning him to death. And so what happens is Jesus gets out of Jerusalem, and he goes to this place, Bethany, beyond the Jordan. And so this is like, I think we have a map, There's, it's like 20 miles from Jerusalem. So if you're walking, it's like a full day's walk. So you're going to walk, let's say, I don't know, like here to Del Rapids, which is not a big deal if you're driving. But if you're walking, that's maybe not like the greatest fun experience that you could do in your life. And then John chapter 11 happens. And Jesus is in Bethany of the Jordan. And there's, this little, there's another town. It's so confusing because there's two Bethanies. So if you're a person who in school who has like a common name like David, there's always like another David. So I always had to be like David C growing up, which I was annoying to me. Maybe I'm the only one in the room who's had experienced that in life. But there's two Bethanies. And so it's confusing. What Bethany are we talking about? We know that Jesus is in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River, east of Jerusalem. But there's this other town called Bethany that's only two miles from Jerusalem. And that's where one of Jesus' closest friends live. So in the scriptures, we've heard about Mary and we've heard about Martha, and he has this friend, Lazarus, and Jesus receives some news in John chapter 11. The news he receives in John chapter 11 is that his friend is sick. 
Like, have you ever been in that moment before? Like someone that you love, someone that you care about, someone who is a big deal to you is sick. And we're not talking about a cold. We're not talking about some kind of rash or flu or anything like that. We're talking about something that could take them out. We're talking about a a serious illness. And so Jesus, after hearing that, waits two days. I mean, if you think you feel like that pause was awkward, imagine two days. So Mary and Martha have sent word to Jesus, to the Lord, who who's know that like, he, he can do something about this situation, and he waits two days. And if you keep reading in John chapter 11, you get to verse 21. And finally, Jesus walks the day from Bethany of the Jordan to Bethany near Israel. And when Mary and Martha hear that Jesus has arrived, verse 21, Scripture tells us that Martha runs out to meet Jesus before he even got in the town. So if you have a dog in your house, or if you have a child in your house, you know what Jesus has experienced. That you can't even get out of the car, you're just walking in the house and there's just, you're not even ready to unload all your stuff and here's some, you have a greeting party for you. This is what Jesus has experienced. He's not even made it into the town yet and here's Martha and Martha comes to Jesus and she looks at him and she says, Lord, if you would have been here. My brother wouldn't have died. Like, have you ever felt that way about God? Have you ever been in that moment? Like, if you would have been here, like, if you would have done something, if you would have showed up, if you would have spoken a word, if you would have just made all of this right, if you could have taken all of the puzzle pieces that fell off the table and put them back together the way that they are supposed to be, if you could take the pieces of the vase that got knocked off the table and put them back together, like, if you would have been here, like, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she goes on and says something else, though. In verse 22, she says that, but I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Like, I know that we serve a God who is able. And it's interesting, this word for no is this Greek word oida. And oida also means to see. So, I know that you're able because I've seen you be able in my life. I've watched you show up time and time again. So, so I know that even in this, just because something is buried, it doesn't mean that it's dead. Like I know even here, even in this darkness and this pain and this confusion and this storm, I know, Oida, that God will give you whatever you ask. I know that you can change this. I know that you can bring light in the darkness and peace in the chaos. And mercy in the middle of accusation, I know that because I've seen it and I've watched it. But this story presents some things for us. And one of the things that it presents for us is that part of what it is going to mean 
for us to trust Jesus is to trust his timing. Part of what, what is going to mean for us to trust Jesus is to trust his timing. And you know how this works. Time for us really just goes in one direction. Like, oh man, like, where has the time gone? Like a two-hour movie can go like that, or a two-hour movie can like go like that. But it only goes in one direction. You can't unbake cookies once they're baked. Uh, you can't uncut hair like once you've cut. Don't worry, I'm, I would never mess this up. <laughs> For those of you that are concerned about that, there ain't a chance. But part of what it is going to mean to trust Jesus is to trust his timing. But it's also going to mean that we trust his will. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of questions about the will of God. Like, can you actually know what God wants? Like, is that even possible for us to get a picture of what that might be? And it's interesting because a lot of people will think of God's will as circumstantial. Like, oh, like this thing happened. So, like, that must have been the will of God. Because it happened. Some other people think of God's will as geographical. Like, God wants me to go to this place. Or it's decisional. God wants me to, like, make this decision. And I just have to tell you, that's just not what I see in the scriptures. I don't see God's will being just circumstantial. I don't see God's will just being decisional. What I see is God's will being formational in the lives of followers of Jesus. Like there, there's something that God wants to bring about. There's something that God has planted in you and me. And he wants to see it grow. He wants to see it flourish. So he wants faith to grow within us. He wants to see grace grow within us. He wants to see mercy and kindness and compassion and mercy grow within us. And so what is his will? His will is that we would grow. And so then... In verse 32, so Martha has gone out to see Jesus, and Martha runs back and tells Mary, like any good sister, Jesus is here. And so Mary runs out, and Jesus, he's still not, he's still not in the town yet. He's still on the outskirts. His arms are full of groceries, if you will. Like, he's not even come in yet, not taken off his shoes, not put his phone down, not even taken a breath. And Mary comes, and Mary does something interesting. Mary falls at his feet. And Mary looks at him and says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. It's almost like Mary and Martha have talked about this. It's almost as if their brother laying in that bed, in that house, and Mary and Martha and maybe some other family members and friends, they're gathered around and they're holding hands and they're crying and they're weeping and they're just saying to themselves, like, if he would have been here, we wouldn't be. 
If he would have showed up, we wouldn't have to stand in this moment. It's a powerful interaction. And there's this question, I think, that shows up. Here's the map of Lower Galilee. So here's kind of what we're talking about. Here's Bethany beyond the Jordan. Here's other Bethany. I don't know what else to call it. So is other Bethany okay? Okay, good. My seminary professors aren't here, so we can just say the other Bethany. And here's Jerusalem. So two miles, that's like 20 miles, all right? Why does it take Jesus so long? Like two days, are you kidding me? Like we are a people that's like about getting stuff done. He waits two days and then he walks a day. So he doesn't even move for two days when he knows like the man that he loves is sick. And it's like scary sick. Not like, oh yeah, you're going to be better. It's not like our pediatrician who's like, yeah, it's probably viral. It's still going on in nine days. Let us know. And I'm like, nine days, Dr. Wallace. No, this is like serious stuff. And anybody who tells you they know (laughs) why Jesus waits for two days, they don't. And I'm not here today to tell you why. Because I don't know. But I have a hunch. And I'd like to tell you my hunch, if you'd allow me. My hunch is that Jesus has shown his people his power. He's shown his people his transformation power. He's changed water into wine at a wedding. He has shown his people his multiplication power. He's taken a a little boy's lunch and blown it up into a banquet that would feed 20,000 people. He's shown his people healing power. The man who could not walk now walks around. The man who couldn't see now sees. He's shown his people his cosmic power by walking on the waves in the middle of this storm that the disciples are in. So he's shown them transformation power and multiplication power and healing power and cosmic power. And my hunch is that Jesus says, now it's time for people to see my resurrection power. I'm not going to heal them. I'm going to raise them to life. And I'm going to make sure he's good and dead before I do that. I'm going to make sure that everybody's convinced this is over. The credits have rolled. This is the end. And once everyone has kind of come to that conclusion, I'm going to show up because just because something is buried doesn't mean that it's dead. And then in verse 35, the shortest verse in all of the scriptures, Jesus weeps. And it's interesting, the word is not just like a little tear. Like it's an outburst of grief. And so for any of us who wonder, like are we allowed that in our life with God? Like are we allowed outbursts towards God? Uh, yes. Because I believe the, the original language kind of gives more force than just weeping. 
And in the ancient world, you would bury somebody on the day of their death, and then you would mourn for 37 days. So for a week, there would be people gathered in the home, even like professional mourners who would show up. And there was songs and music and the whole deal. Like that was their job, to stand outside the home and weep and to wail. And, and then they would go home. And then the next 30 days, you would enter into a process of mourning and grief. And what John will not allow us to miss is that Jesus shows up in the middle of their deepest grief. It's been a couple days. They're still in the, the middle of that intensity, and that's where he shows up, and he grieves with them. He doesn't watch them grieve. He's not an observer. And I just think that's a really important thing for you to hear, that when you are in grief, God's not watching you. He's not observing you. He's not like standing over here looking. He's grieving with you. Like his heart is broken too. Because he knows what it's like to lose a friend. He knows what it's like to feel the powerlessness of that moment. Verse 39, Jesus gives a couple commands. So, how do you know you're in charge? When you show up somewhere and you start barking orders, that's how you know. And usually in a moment like that, everybody kind of agrees who's in charge, right? Verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. Get this out of here. We're not going to need this anymore. Verse 43, he says, Lazarus, come out. And then in verse 44, Jesus says, like, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Something you need to know about grave clothes. When you died in the ancient world, they would wrap you in about 100 pounds of linen and spices. And so this was not like, well, whatever he died in, we'll just bury him in that. No, there was like a whole process for this. Um, they actually... When they wrapped the head, it actually like tripled the size of the head. So I've never had to walk in that kind of a moment, but I would assume it's difficult to do. So what's beautiful about this story, this is extra, is that there's two miracles. Lazarus is raised to life and he walks out. And so anytime there's a resurrection, there's movement. Like you don't just like stay where you were before, but you live and move and breathe in a new way. And I think this is a statement about not just what covers you, but about like what weighs you down. Like take off the grave clothes. Like these were heavy. The, the clothes, the linens that were wrapping him up, they just, there was a weight to those things. And Jesus is like, hey, we're not going to be wrapped in that anymore. We're not going to be covered in that anymore. You're not going to be weighed down by that anymore. And so when we talk about resurrection... I think we need to talk about resurrection as an invasion. In scriptures, we also, we often will talk about like sin invading our world. So way back in Genesis, there's Adam and Eve and they were living in paradise in this perfect place. 
And they lose all of that perfection because they thought their way was better. And so they made a series of choices that led to a reality that they needed to step into. And it's invaded our world. But resurrection is that way too. Resurrection invades a world of darkness. Resurrection invades a world of chaos. Resurrection invades a world of pain and brings beauty and peace and freedom and light. And so moments that have worked to bury you in your life, resurrection is an invasion of those moments. Words that have worked to bury you in your life, Resurrection is an invasion against those words, choices that have worked to bury you in your life. Resurrection is an invasion to those choices. And I think sometimes on Easter, I invite the band up as we close today, sometimes on Easter what happens is like we, we celebrate and we use all of these church words freedom and resurrection and grace and forgiveness. And I think some people are left like, but what does it actually do? Like it's some kind of decoration in the house of God that you don't actually touch. Anybody have those things at grandma's house? They just sit and look cool. Don't touch it. I think this is what has happened to the American church. I think we're not really sure, like, if it does anything. We're not really sure if it actually changes anything now. I think we're convinced that ultimately, someday, it's going to change. Because, like, you're going to get to be united with God in heaven. But, like, we're missing all of the power that is underneath the surface. And so I believe that resurrection makes it possible to smile again after there's been a moment of intense grief and pain and hardship. I think resurrection makes it possible to laugh again when you never thought in your life that would be a part of your story because of what you've walked in or even what you're in the middle of now. You just can't imagine feeling that joy again. I think resurrection makes it possible to dream. I think resurrection makes it possible to have hope. I think resurrection makes it possible to create again. Like when you stopped creating, when you stopped doing the things that are you, I think when resurrection enters a story, you start doing those things again. I think resurrection makes it possible for you to live. And there's something beautiful about Lazarus. Lazarus has a pre-burial life, and Lazarus has a post-burial life. And if you ask me, which none of you are, so I will tell you, that's a nod to the resurrection that we all are going to experience. That's a nod to eternity. That's John, like, winking at us and being like, oh, don't miss it. It's not just about having a pre-burial life, but it's about having a post-burial life. And so we know from church history, I'm not going to get too nerdy, just real quick, We know from church history that Lazarus, he either goes to France and does some things there, which people fight about whether that's true or not. Other people say, no, he didn't go to France. He went to Cyprus and did some stuff there. Had a significant role in the church in that first century. 
And so he's got a pre-burial and a post-burial life. And can I just say that that's true of you and me? That this is not all that there's going to be. But there's a, there's a life that's coming and we're going to be raised to life out of the tombs and out of the clothes that have wrapped us up and weighed us down. And there's going to be a new work for us to be about in the kingdom that is coming. But I don't know if you've ever wondered this. I've wonder, wondered, like, from where does God bring resurrection? Have you ever wondered, like, like couldn't, couldn't have God brought about resurrection from heaven for everybody? Like, yes, he could have done that. It wouldn't have mattered where this happened. He's enthroned in heaven, and he could have just breathed resurrection on the whole world, and we could have all been raised to life. But I think it's so significant that God brings his victory, God brings his freedom, not from heaven, but from earth through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus, because resurrection's not just for heaven, it's for earth. It's not just this thing that we wait for, it's this thing that we can wrap our hands around now, today, in this moment, we can laugh again, we can live again, we can breathe again, we can hope again, and we can create again. Ask Lazarus. And isn't it beautiful, church, that God doesn't, bring healing and freedom and victory from far off, but he brings it here through his son. And if there's something to get excited about on Easter, that's it. Because he's not a God who's just a witness, who's just a watcher, who just has showed up to observe. He's a God who's gotten his hands dirty, and I'm so glad. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for the goodness and the grace and the power of the resurrection. We thank you that you saw fit to step into history, to step into our moment, to step into our story, to endure the pain and the suffering and the anguish of the cross, to hang between two people, to be crucified amongst a world that was being put to death. And after three days, not only have you called humanity out of the tomb, but you walked out of the tomb yourself, offering life and hope and blessing. If there's anybody in this room today seated on these chairs who's not sure if that's for them, I pray that your Holy Spirit would remind them that resurrection isn't for anybody unless it's for everybody. I pray that we would live with this in mind. that you chose to bring resurrection in the midst of earth. And so on this resurrection day, gathered in this room, we thank you for getting in the midst of it. And we pray that you would give us the strength and the courage and the power for us to follow you in that place. Because there is a formative work that you want to do in our lives and we God wants to be people who are open to that work. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, with all of it. We give you thanks and praise for rising again. And it gives us hope for the 
rising that we await as we continue to be salt and light in this world that is in desperate need of hearing Lazarus come out. Would that be our message? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing one more song together.